0: Hello, and welcome to this special edition of the Catholic Man Show. As many of you know, we recently launched a course produced by Catholic Answers staff apologist Carlo Broussard entitled Aquinas and the Eucharist. With this being uh, part of the year of the Eucharistic revival, what better way to learn more about the Eucharist than what the angelic doctor said himself? So this audio-video course is a deep dive into his writings and is intended for you to sit down, open up your Summa, and review each question with Carlo as he reads through the text and provides commentary. This is like a 14-part series that Carlo put together exclusively for our $10 per month or more patrons. However, we wanted to share this first course with you in hopes of you that you enjoy it and either continue reading Aquinas and or join us over at Patreon. So our desire really is for this course to help you fall deeper in love with our Eucharistic Lord. So we really hope you enjoy it, and we want to thank our current supporters as they are the ones who made this course actually possible for us. So check us out over at the patreon.com slash the Catholic Man Show. I hope you guys enjoy. Cheers to Jesus. Hey, patrons of the
1: Catholic Man Show, Bruce Broussard here, staff apologist and speaker for Catholic Answers. I'd like to welcome you to this short course on Aquinas and the Eucharist, where we'll be looking at what Aquinas says about the Eucharist and his Summa Theologiae, Tertia Pars, or the third part, questions 73 through 83. I'd like to thank Adam and David for this opportunity to share the course with you, which is a token of their appreciation for your support of the show, a support that I would strongly recommend that you continue in. I think you're going to enjoy going through this course on the Eucharist because Aquinas has some great things to say about it. And of course, it's just always fun to geek out on this stuff, right? And I hope you'll have as much fun hearing it and viewing it as I will teaching it. Aquinas defa- divides his treatment on the Eucharist into seven major themes or aspects of the sacrament and treats each with one or several different Questions, which are basically further subpoints to make about those seven major aspects of the Eucharist. And each of the questions are further divided into what Aquinas calls articles or points of inquiry. Each of the lessons in this course will ordinarily deal with one question, one of these questions. But there will be times where we'll have to divide the question into two lessons in order to do justice to it. So, for example, question 75 is so dense and so packed that we have to divide it into two to do it justice. Now, the methodology that I'll use is simple. Read the text and offer commentary as we go. Some things can be received upon an initial reading others however not so much sometimes there is some need for commentary and i'll do my best to provide that for you also my goal is to outline aquinas's thought in a way that's easily digestible giving summaries of the various arguments with premises and conclusions and also summarizing sort of the objections uh, summarizing the objections and the replies And then we'll read the text, but just to give you summary points in order to help digest it. I know it helps me to outline and to give summary points and to keep track of exactly what Aquinas is saying, because in the summaries, I'll be making explicit sometimes what Aquinas often is saying implicitly. Now, before we begin diving into question 73 in this lesson, it's important that we look at Aquinas' outline of the material that he'll be going through on the Eucharist. Aquinas, again, says there are seven major aspects of the Eucharist to consider. The sacrament itself, and that's question 73 in this lesson. It's matter, and that'll be covered in questions 74 through 77. It's form, question 78. It's effects, the effects of the sacrament, question 79. The use or receiving of the sacrament, and that'll be questions 80 through 81. The minister of the sacrament, question 82. And finally, the rite of the sacrament, question 83. In this lesson, as I said, we'll start with question 73, which deals with the sacrament itself. And it's divided up into six articles, or as Aquinas puts it, six points of inquiry, six questions, basically. And so the first point of inquiry is this, is the Eucharist a sacrament? Now, we have to start with the question, what is a sacrament? Well, a sacrament is a sense perceptible sign that affects what it signifies. So really the question here is, does the bread in the Eucharist affect what it signifies, namely the body and blood of Jesus? Now, when Aquinas answers these points of inquiry, he'll start off by with an answer that's often an appeal to authority, some early church father or the liturgy. Sometimes, every once in a while, he'll appeal to sort of a theological principle, but most often it's an appeal to authority. And then he'll give his answer to the question and his argumentation and defense of his answer. So to the question, is the Eucharist a sacrament? Aquinas answers in the affirmative, yes. His appeal to authority, he writes, on the contrary, and that's that paragraph there, that part of the response, he always begins on the contrary, which is an appeal to an authority. Now, it's contrary to the objections, because in the Summa, Aquinas starts with all of the objections first. So, reasons why someone might say the Eucharist is not a sacrament, so he lists all of those objections, and then he responds on the contrary, and that is to say, in support of his view, which the Eucharist is a sacrament, he appeals to authority. Now, in our lessons as we go through this, we're not going to follow Aquinas' methodology of listing all of the objections first, then his response, and then the replies to to the objections. For me, that's always difficult to follow. So what we're going to do, our methodology is we'll give Aquinas' answer to the point of inquiry, then we'll go through each of the objections and Aquinas' reply to that objection in order to keep everything straight in our minds. So is the Eucharist a sacrament? Aquinas says yes. And so here's his appeal to authority. It is said in the collect So here he's appealing to the authority of the liturgy. May this thy sacrament not make us deserving of punishment. Now, here's Aquinas' own reasoning. I answer that. That's how he always starts his response. The church's sacraments are ordained for helping man in the spiritual life, but the spiritual life is analogous to the corporeal, since corporeal things bear a resemblance to spiritual now, it's clear that just as generation is required for corporeal life, since thereby man receives life, and growth, whereby man is brought to maturity, so likewise food is required for the preservation of life. Consequently, just as for the spiritual life, there had to be baptism, which is spiritual generation, and confirmation, which is spiritual growth, so there needed to be the sacrament of the Eucharist, which is spiritual Food. So here's a summary of what Aquinas is saying here. Is the Eucharist a sacrament? Yes. What is the reason why the Eucharist is a sacrament? His answer basically is there needs to be preservation of the spiritual life. So notice there's this parallel going on here between the natural life and the supernatural life. And just as there's generation and maturity corresponding to baptism and confirmation, and so too, there is spiritual generation and maturity uh, in the spiritual life. And so if there's preservation, the need for preservation of the natural life, there's going to be need for preservation of the spiritual life and thus a corresponding sacrament, and that is the Eucharist. So we might summarize Aquinas' thought in this way. Premise one, the purpose of the sacraments is to help man in the spiritual life. Premise two, The spiritual life patterns the corporeal life in generation, growth, and preservation of such life. Conclusion one, therefore, there should be sacraments that correspond with generation, growth, and the preservation of such life. Premise three, there are sacraments that correspond to generation and growth, that is baptism and confirmation, respectively. Therefore, conclusion two, there must be a sacrament that corresponds to the preservation of life. Spiritual life, that is, i.e., the Eucharist. Now, what I'm going to do for the objections, what you what you see in the objections are basically reasons given for why the Eucharist is not a sacrament, right? And so each of those objections that Aquinas lists and goes through and articulates are reasons why someone might think the Eucharist is not a sacrament. And as we go through each of the points of inquiry in the articles and Aquinas' treatment on the Eucharist, that's what the objections are, reasons why someone might think contrary to what Aquinas reasons or thinks, all right? And the objections here in this particular point of inquiry are all take the form of a modus tollens argument, right? So for example, here's a modus tollens. If it's raining outside, then it's wet outside, but it's not wet outside, therefore it's not raining. So if A, then B, not B, therefore not A. So you negate the consequent and you conclude with a negation of the antecedent. So this is called a modus tollens argument, and all of the objections in this particular point of inquiry take on that form. So here's the first reason why someone might think the Eucharist is not a sacrament. Confirmation and the Eucharist would be ordained to the same end of perfection, which can't be. So the objection, objection one reads as follows. It seems that the Eucharist is not a sacrament. For two sacraments ought not to be ordained for the same end, because every sacrament is efficacious in producing its effect. Therefore, since both confirmation and the Eucharist are ordained to perfection, as Dionysius says, it seems that the Eucharist is not a sacrament, since confirmation is one, as stated above. He's referring to questions 65 and 72 of the Tertioporus. So here's a summary of the objection. Premise one, if the Eucharist were a sacrament, then it wouldn't be ordained to the same end as confirmation, i.e. Perfection. Premise two, but the Eucharist is ordained to the same end as confirmation, i.e. perfection. Therefore, the Eucharist is not a sacrament. That's the modus tollens. So Aquinas responds basically by showing how the objection runs on a vague understanding of quote-unquote perfection. Here's how he responds. He writes, perfection is twofold. The first lies within man himself and he attains it by growth, such perfection belongs to confirmation. The other is the perfection which comes to man from the addition of food or clothing or something of the kind, and such is the perfection befitting the Eucharist, which is the spiritual refreshment. So a summary of Aquinas' response, he's basically saying this, premise one, the Eucharist would have the same identical end as confirmation and thus not be distinct from confirmation if and only if the perfection that the Eucharist achieves is identical to the perfection that confirmation achieves. Premise two, but the perfection that the Eucharist achieves is not identical to the perfection that confirmation achieves. Recall, the perfection of confirmation lies within man himself. The perfection of the Eucharist comes to man from the outside. Therefore, his conclusion, the Eucharist doesn't have the same exact end as confirmation, and thus is distinct from it. So there's Aquinas' response to the first objection, pointing out how the objection runs on a vague understanding of perfection. All right, so reason two. What's another reason why someone might think the Eucharist is not a sacrament? Well, One objection is the species of bread and wine would produce Christ's true body like water produces spiritual cleansing, which can't be. Now, it's important to note here species in Latin, the word simply means a seeing, view, look, an external appearance, a show or display. It's in this sense that Aquinas is using the term species. He's not using it and the Aristotelian sense of a species that divides up a, 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 a genus, right? So that's what he means by species. So the objection is saying, hey, if the Eucharist were a sacrament, then the species of bread and wine itself, the mere appearance, having the appearance of bread and wine would affect Christ's true body, like simply having the water and baptism produces the spiritual cleansing. But that can't be. Why? Because you need the consecration of the bread and the wine. So here's how Aquinas articulates the objection. Further, in every sacrament of the new law, which comes visibly under our senses, species, causes the invisible effect of the sacrament, just as cleansing with water causes the baptismal character and spiritual cleansing, as stated above in questions 63 and 66 of the Tertioporus. But the species of bread and wine, which are the objects of our senses in the sacrament, Neither produce Christ's true body, which is both reality and sacrament, in Latin there that's res et sacramentum, nor his mystical body, which is the reality only in the Eucharist, in Latin res tantum. Now, brief commentary there, just as a side note, Aquinas is drawing on a, a scholastic threefold dimension of each of the sacraments. Sacramentum tantum, that's the sign only, only that which appears to, appeals to the senses, res et sacramentum, that's the reality and the sign, or the sign and the reality, Uh, and res tantum, the reality only, which which basically, that can be a little bit confusing. Uh, Res tantum, the reality only, that basically refers to the primary and secondary effects of the sacrament. So think effects of the sacrament whenever we come across reality only, or res tantum. For the Eucharist, The sacramentum tantum is the sign only, and that's the bread and the wine. The res et sacramentum, the reality and the sign, is the actual body and blood of Christ. And the res tantum, the reality only, that, again, refers to the primary and secondary effects, union of members within the mystical body of Christ, which is the primary effect, and the secondary effect is spiritual refreshment. Okay? So, getting back to the objection, uh, Every sacrament visible under our senses causes the invisible effect, just as cleansing causes spiritual cleansing. But the species of bread and wine, which are the objects of our senses, do not produce Christ's true body, which is both reality and sacrament, nor his mystical body, which is the primary effect. Therefore, it seems the Eucharist is not a sacrament of the new law. Now, Aquinas responds by pointing out how the objection operates on a flawed assumption as to the nature of the sacrament of baptism and the cause of its spiritual efficacy. So here's how he writes. Here's what he writes in response. The water of baptism does not cause any spiritual effect by reason of the water, but by reason of the power of the Holy Ghost, which power is in the water. And he gives two pieces of evidence here. Number one, John 5, 4, an angel of the Lord at certain times came, and hovered over the waters in the pool of Siloam. second piece of evidence, Chrysostom observes, the water does not act simply as such upon the baptized, but when it receives the grace of the Holy Ghost, then it loses all sins, okay? So that's his first premise. Water baptism doesn't cause any spiritual effect by reason of the water, but by reason of the power of the Holy Ghost. But the true body of Christ bears the same relation to the species of the bread and wine As the power of the Holy Ghost does to the water of baptism. Hence, the species of the bread and wine produce no effect except from the virtue of Christ's true body. So, the bottom line is that the objection has a flawed assumption as to the nature of the sacrament of baptism. Because remember, the objection appealed to the sacrament of baptism in order to show that the Eucharist is not a sacrament. But Aquinas is saying no. There's a parallel relation between the Holy Ghost and the waters of baptism and the body of Christ and the species of bread and wine. Now, the third reason why someone might think the Eucharist is not a sacrament is that the Eucharist would be perfected by the use of the matter instead of the consecration, which is absurd. Now, that use of the matter, that's going to come up over and over and over again throughout Aquinas' treatment on the Eucharist. So the objection reads as follows. Further, the sacraments of the new law as having matter or perfected by the use of the matter. For example, as baptism is by ablution and confirmation by signing with chrism. So you got the use of water and the ablution or the washing, the use of chrism and the signing. If then the Eucharist be a sacrament, the objection goes further, it would be perfected by the use of the matter, by the use of bread and wine and not by its consecration. But this is manifestly false because the words spoken in the consecration of the matter are the form of the sacrament, as will be shown later on in question 78 of the Tercioporos. Therefore, the Eucharist is not a sacrament. So basically, if sacrament, then use of matter in the Eucharist, but not use of matter in the Eucharist because of consecration, therefore not a sacrament. Now, Aquinas replies by saying the Eucharist is unique in relation to the other sacraments, such that the sacrament is completed by the words of consecration without the use of matter being applied to the recipient. So there's a false parallel, a misunderstanding of the unique nature of the Eucharist, right? So Aquinas writes, the sacrament is so termed because it contains something sacred. Now, a thing can be styled sacred from two causes, either absolutely or in relation to something else. The difference between the Eucharist and other sacraments having sensible matter is that whereas the Eucharist contains something which is sacred absolutely, namely Christ's own body, the baptismal water contains something which is sacred in relation to something else, namely the sanctifying power. And the same holds good of chrism and such like. Consequently, the sacrament of the Eucharist is completed in the very consecration of the matter, the absolute option that he gave, whereas the other sacraments, are completed in the application of the matter for the sanctification or sanctifying of the individual. Remember his option in relation to something else. And then he goes on, and from this follows another difference. For in the sacrament of the Eucharist, what is both reality and sacrament, the body of Christ, is in the matter itself. But what is reality only, the effect, in this case, the secondary effect, namely the grace bestowed, is in the recipient. Whereas in baptism, notice the contrast, in baptism both reality and sacrament and reality only, or in the recipient, namely the character, which is both reality and sacrament and the grace of pardoning of sins, which is reality only. And the same holds good of the other sacraments. So he's basically giving two arguments here. In the first argument, you have the, uh, the sacredness of the sacrament, right? What makes the sacrament holy and and sacred and complete in the Eucharist, it's it's, it's sacred absolutely speaking. It's sacred not in relation to something else. It's sacred because in the matter is the reality and the sacrament, which is the body and blood of Jesus Christ. It does not have to be applied to the recipient in order to be the body and blood of Christ. Whereas in baptism, in order for that sacrament to be complete and perfected and sacred, the water has to be applied to the recipient, as well as in confirmation concerning the chrism. So that was the first argument. The second argument is that uh, you have in the Eucharist both the reality in the sacrament, getting back to that scholastic threefold distinction of the sacraments, you have both reality in sacrament and effect in the Eucharist. Uh, Excuse me. No, that's it. You have the reality in the sacrament in the matter and the reality only or the effect in the recipient. Notice the distinction. Reality in sacrament, in the sacrament, absolutely. Reality only or the effect in the recipient. But for baptism, both these things come together in the recipient. And so therefore, there's a distinction between the Eucharist and baptism, so the objection fails. Again, the Eucharist is unique in relation to the other sacraments, such that the sacrament is completed or perfected by the words of consecration without the use of the matter being applied to the recipient. And so that's important to note uh, concerning the Eucharist, why it is different than all of the other sacraments. So normally in catechesis, we talk about How the Eucharist is the most blessed sacrament because it contains Christ Himself in the Eucharist. So, this is furthering, fleshing out that teaching to show that it is perfected and it is complete and it is sacred, absolutely speaking, because it has Christ Himself. And it is not, you do not have to apply. The, the the matter, the bread and the wine, to the recipient. You do not have to have holy communion in order to have the perfection of the sacrament, namely Christ's true body and true blood. And that is yet another reason why it is the most blessed sacrament in relation to the others. All right. So that is our first article or first point of inquiry. Now we move to the second point of inquiry: is the is the Eucharist one sacrament or several? Now, Aquinas is going to answer one here, and his appeal to authority is an appeal to St. Paul from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 17, for we being many are one bread, one body, all that partake of one bread, from which it's clear that the Eucharist is the sacrament of the church's unity, he writes, but a sacrament bears the likeness of the reality whereof it is the sacrament, therefore the Eucharist is one sacrament. And then he goes on to his reasoning, I answer that as stated in metaphysics book five, a thing is said to be one, not only for being indivisible or continuous, but also when it's complete or perfected. So for example, we speak of one house and one man. He goes on, a thing is one in perfection when it's complete through the presence of all that's needed for its end or goal. So for example, As a man is complete by having all the members required for the operation of his soul, and a house by having all the parts needful for dwelling therein. And so this sacrament is said to be one because it's ordained for spiritual refreshment, which which is conformed to corporeal refreshment. This is the end, right? Spiritual refreshment. Now, he, he now moves to articulate all that's needed for the end of spiritual refreshment, and that is Christ's body and blood. Remember. Starting out with the end, it's ordained to one end or goal, and in order for things to be one, it's going to have everything it needs for that goal, so now he's going to articulate that the Eucharist has everything it needs for achieving the goal of spiritual refreshment. He writes, now there are two things required for corporeal refreshment, namely food, which is dry sustenance, and drink, which is wet substance, sustenance, excuse me. Consequently, two things concur for the integrity of this sacrament, the Eucharist, to wit, spiritual food and spiritual drink. According to John, my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. Therefore, this sacrament is materially many, all that is needed for the end, but formally and perfectively one, because there's only one end, spiritual refreshment. So to the question, is the Eucharist one or several? Aquinas answers one. What is the reason why the Eucharist is one sacrament? Upon the consecration of bread and wine, the sacrament has that which is necessary to make it complete and thereby perfect for spiritual nourishment, namely Christ's body and blood. That's Aquinas' reason why the Eucharist is one. So here's a summary, premise one, when a sacrament has that which is necessary for it to be complete and thereby perfect, it's one. Premise two, the Eucharist requires both Christ's body and blood to be complete for spiritual refreshment. Premise three. The Eucharist is both Christ's body and blood, therefore, conclusion one, the Eucharist has that which is necessary for it to be complete and thereby perfect, conclusion two, therefore, the Eucharist is one. So now on to the reasons given why the Eucharist is not one. Again, the objections and the replies. Each of the objections is a reason why the Eucharist is not one. Unlike the previous article, not all of these objections take on the form of a modus tollens. So here's the first reason. The collect of the mass speaks of the Eucharist as a plurality of sacraments. The objection reads as follows. It seems that the Eucharist is not one sacrament, but several, because it's said in the collect, may the sacraments which we have received purify us, O Lord. And this is said on account of our receiving the Eucharist. Consequently, the Eucharist is not one sacrament, but several. Aquinas is going to reply here. There's a sense in which the Eucharist is many, and yet in another sense in which it is one. He writes, the same collect at first employs the plural, may the sacraments which we have received purify us, and afterwards the singular number, may this sacrament of thine not make us worthy of punishment. And then he goes on to explain, so as to show that this sacrament is in a measure, in a certain manner there in the Latin, several, yet simply one. So in some sense, it's many, because materially speaking, you have the bread and the wine, but in another sense, it's one because you have a single end, right? Reason number two, uh, there are many signs of the Eucharist, bread and wine, pretty much the same objection. The first objection is appealing to the colic. You have plural, but then Aquinas says, yeah, it talks about the Eucharist in the plural, but it also talks about the Eucharist as one. So it's going to be several in one sense, it's going to be one in another. Now we're going to move into the ways in which it is several, And one. So reason number two, there are many signs of the Eucharist, bread and wine. The the objection reads, uh, it's impossible for genera to be multiplied without the species being multiplied. Thus, it is impossible for one man to be many animals. But as stated above, sign is the genus of sacrament. Since then, there are more signs than one to wit bread and wine. It seems to follow that here, there must be more sacraments than one. Aquinas' reply, basically, Materially, many, but formally, one. Why formally one? Because there's a single in of spiritual refreshment. Third reason why the Eucharist is not a sacrament, the Eucharist involves a double consecration. So basically saying, hey, listen, if the sacrament were one, then it wouldn't be a double consecration, but it is a double consecration, therefore the sacrament cannot be one, right? The objection reads, the sacrament is perfected in the consecration of the matter, But in this sacrament, there's a double consecration of the matter. Therefore, it can't be just one sacrament. It's got to be two. What's Aquinas' reply? Same thing as before. Materially, it's many, but it's not many, formally speaking. Why? Because there's one end, spiritual refreshment. So you have all the different stuff going on, all the matter. That's a lot of stuff. That's different. Bread, wine, double consecration, different forms. But because it's all ordered to one end, it's one sacrament. All right, moving on to our third point of inquiry, whether the Eucharist is necessary for salvation. Aquinas' answer, in the negative, no, it is not necessary, whenever you understand necessary in in the appropriate way. So first of all, Aquinas appeals to Augustine here for his authority. Augustine writes, nor are you you to suppose that children cannot possess life who are deprived of the body and blood of Christ. The point being there, hey, listen, children can have eternal life without receiving the body and blood of our Lord. And so therefore, the conclusion is the body and blood of our Lord is not absolutely necessary for salvation. Aquinas gives his own reasoning in this way. Two things have to be considered in the sacrament, namely the sacrament itself, The sign alone and what is contained in it. This is going to refer to the reality of the sacrament below, the primary effect of the sacrament, right? So we might think of the reality of the sacrament to be Christ's body, but for Aquinas, that's the reality and the sacrament together, res et sacramentum. Here he's talking about the sacrament itself and what is contained in it, namely the primary effect of the sacrament. That's what Aquinas says after here. So he goes on. Now, it was stated above that the reality of the sacrament, remember, the primary effect of the sacrament, we might think Christ's body and blood is the reality of the sacrament. But whenever Aquinas says reality of the sacrament, that's res, uh, excuse me, that's, yeah, that's res tantum, that's the reality only. That's the effect of the sacrament, okay? So it was stated above that the reality of the sacrament, res tantum, the primary effect of the sacrament is the unity of the mystical body, without which there can be no salvation. For there is no entering into salvation outside the church. That is to say, outside the body, just as in the time of the deluge, there was none outside the ark, which denotes the church, according to 1 Peter 3, 20 and 21, And it's been said above that before receiving a sacrament, the reality of the sacrament, primary effect of the sacrament, union with the mystical body of Christ, can be had through the very desire of receiving the sacrament. Accordingly, before actual reception of the sacrament, a man can obtain salvation through the desire of receiving it, just as he can before baptism through the desire of baptism, as stated above, question 68, article 2. And then he's going to go on to articulate a difference in two respects. First of all, because baptism is the beginning of the spiritual life and the door of the sacraments, whereas the Eucharist is, as it were, the consummation of the spiritual life and the end of all the sacraments, as a, as was observed above. For by the hallowings of all the sacraments, preparation is made for receiving or consecrating the Eucharist. Consequently, the reception of baptism is necessary for starting the spiritual life, while the receiving of the Eucharist is requisite for its consummation. By partaking not indeed actually, but in desire, as an end is possessed in desire and intention. Another difference is because by baptism a man is ordained to the Eucharist. And therefore, from the fact of children being baptized, they are destined by the church, <coughs> excuse me, to the Eucharist. And just as they believe through the church's face, faith, so they desire the Eucharist through the church's intention, and as a result, receive its reality. But they are not disposed for baptism by any previous sacrament, and consequently, before receiving baptism, in no way have have they baptism in desire. Now, he's talking about children here, not adults. But adults alone have. Consequently, they cannot have the reality, they, the children, cannot have the reality of the sacrament of baptism without receiving the sacrament itself. Therefore, the sacrament is not necessary, Eucharist is not necessary, for salvation in the same way as baptism is. So, basically, Aquinas is saying the Eucharist is not necessary for salvation in an absolute way because you can have a desire for receiving it and thus experience the fruits or the primary effect of the Eucharist, which is union with the mystical body of Christ, that can be brought about without receiving the Eucharist by in virtue of a desire for it, just as you can receive and obtain the grace of justification without the visible sacrament of baptism, if you have a desire for it and you are physically impeded from receiving it. But then he goes to nuance it more in drawing a distinction between the necessity of the Eucharist for salvation and the necessity of baptism for salvation with regard to adults and children, right? So with regard to baptism, a child cannot receive the primary effect of the Eucharist by desire because the child cannot desire the primary effect of baptism excuse me by desire because the child cannot desire whereas adults can but with regard to the, with regard to the eucharist right uh, it's not necessary for salvation in the same way that baptism is necessary for salvation because baptism is preparing for the eucharist but there's no preparatory sacrament for baptism and that's aquinas's distinction between the two so let's summarize it here is the eucharist necessary for salvation in other words i.e., I will not be saved without actually receiving the sacrament. Aquinas' answer is no. Why is the Eucharist not necessary for salvation? Well, because man can be joined to the unity of the mystical body, the church, by their desire to receive the sacrament. So here's how we would here's how I would summarize Aquinas' argument. Premise one: if we can be joined to the unity of the mystical body of Christ without receiving the sacrament, then it's not necessary for salvation. Premise two. A person can be joined to the unity of the mystical body of Christ through their desire for the sacrament without receiving it. Therefore, conclusion, the Eucharist is not necessary for salvation. This is what we would call a modus ponens argument, where you have the antecedent and the consequent. If A, then B, you affirm the antecedent, A, therefore you conclude with the consequent. All right. So, what are some reasons given why the Eucharist is not, uh, or why the Eucharist is necessary for salvation? Well, the first reason one might give is Jesus does say it's necessary for salvation in John six fifty four. That's what the objection appeals to. Except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Right. But Christ's flesh is eaten and his blood drink is drunk in this sacrament. The objection says, therefore, without the sacrament, man can't have the health of spiritual life. Now, Aquinas responds by saying, Jesus is speaking of the fellowship among the members of his mystical body, which can be had without receiving the sacrament. And here in this re- reply, he appeals to Augustine. Augustine says, explaining John 6, 54, this food and this drink, namely of his flesh and blood. He would have us understand the fellowship of his body and members, which is the church in his predestinated and called and justified and glorified his holy and believing ones. And then Aquinas says, hence, as he says in his epistle to Boniface, again, quoting Augustine. Um, no, I don't think this is Augustine here. No one should entertain the slightest doubt that then every one of the faithful becomes a partaker of the body and blood of Christ when in baptism he is made a member of Christ's body. Nor is he deprived of his share in that body and chalice, even though he depart from this world and the unity of Christ's body before he eats the bread and drinks of that chalice. So again, appealing to the desire for Eucharist, bringing about the primary effect of unity with the mystical body of Christ. Now, it is interesting that Augustine is reading John six fifty four in a spiritual way, That of partaking of the flesh and blood of the Son of Man, which is necessary for salvation, being a reference to the fellowship of his body and his members. Now, that could be ammunition for our Protestant brothers and sisters who want to appeal to Augustine for a symbolic or metaphorical reading of this text. So it is true that Augustine is reading this in a metaphorical way, eating Christ's flesh and blood, referring to fellowship in his mystical body. But of course, there are other places when Augustine does read it in a literal way as well. So there would be a polyvalent multi-layered understanding of Christ's words here. And Aquinas is going to appear to the, appeal to the metaphorical reading in order to reply to the objection. Now we could also read Christ's words that it is necessary for salvation with regard to those to whom it is revealed, right? So Christ said, you got to eat my flesh and drink my blood in order to go to heaven. But just like we would say baptism is necessary for salvation to those to whom it is revealed, the mystery of eating Christ's flesh and blood being necessary for salvation would apply to those to whom it is revealed. So anybody who would reject it and say no would not attain eternal life. Okay. So there is a way in which we can read Christ's words with regard to the necessity for salvation in eating his flesh and drinking his blood, and read it in a way that would fit with what the church teaches. Okay, the second reason why one might consider the Eucharist to uh, to be necessary for salvation is that the Eucharist is our spiritual food, which is necessary for salvation as natural food is necessary for bodily health. And that's basically what the objection states. The sacrament is a kind of spiritual food, but bodily food is requisite for bodily health, therefore also is the sacrament for spiritual health. Now, Aquinas is going to respond and say the comparison between bodily food and spiritual food doesn't hold, although it's analogous. They're not an exact one-to-one match. Here's what he writes. The difference between corporeal and spiritual food lies in this, that the former is changed into the substance of the person nourished, and consequently it cannot avail for for supporting life except it be partaken of. So physical food? It becomes us, and so we got to eat the physical food in order for it to sustain us. But spiritual food, he continues, changes man into itself. So it's the other way around. According to that saying of Augustine, that he heard the voice of Christ as it were saying to him, nor shalt thou change me into thyself as food of thy flesh, but thou shalt be changed into me. Aquinas goes on, but one cannot be changed into Christ And be incorporated in him by mental desire, uh, excuse me, but one can be changed into Christ and be incorporated in him by mental desire, even without receiving the sacrament. And consequently, the comparison does not hold. So, physical food becomes us. Therefore, we can't be sustained by it unless it becomes us. In the Eucharist, we become Christ. We're conformed to Christ. So, the question becomes can we be conformed to Christ? Uh, without eating the sacrament? And the answer is yes. And so therefore Aquinas concludes the sacrament is not necessary for salvation in contrast to physical food, which is necessary for the sustenance of bodily life. Third reason, given why the sacrament is necessary for salvation, like baptism, the Eucharist is the sacrament of our Lord's passion without which we cannot be saved. So, Aquinas is going to respond by saying the objection wrongly assumes that the Eucharist enables us to share in Christ's passion in the exact same way as baptism, right? So, the objection is saying baptism is a sacrament of our Lord's passion, without which there's no salvation. So, also the Eucharist, right? Consequently, as baptism is necessary for salvation, so is the sacrament. But Aquinas is saying, no, there is a there is there is not an exact one-to-one match here. He writes, baptism is the sacrament of Christ's death and passion, according as a man is born anew in Christ in virtue of his passion. But the Eucharist is the sacrament of Christ's passion, according as man is made perfect in union with Christ who suffered. Hence, as baptism is called the sacrament of faith, which is the foundation of spiritual life, so the Eucharist is termed the sacrament of charity, which is the bond of perfection. So there's not an exact match. With regard to the sharing in Christ's passion in the Eucharist and baptism, we share in Christ's passion in different ways. And so one cannot appeal to baptism in order to justify their claim that the Eucharist is necessary for salvation like baptism is. We share in Christ's passion in different ways in both sacraments. And so the necessity for salvation is going to be different for both of the sacraments. Fourth point of inquiry, whether the Eucharist is suitably, suitably called by various names. Aquinas' answer, yes. What is his first appeal to authority? Well, the use of these expressions by the faithful, right? So he's appealing to practice here. He's not appealing to any authoritative source except the practice of the faithful. And there's a sense of authority in that, I guess. Now, his answer is this. The sacrament has a threefold significance. The first significance for Aquinas is going to be sacrifice, which which is the past dimension. One, with regard to the past, inasmuch as it's the commemorative of our Lord's passion, which was a true sacrifice, as stated above. And in this respect, it's called a sacrifice. So that, that's his justification for calling the Eucharist a sacrifice. The second... Uh, significance is with regard to the present, and that's communion. With regard to the present, he writes, it has another meaning, namely that of ecclesial unity, in which men are aggregated through this sacrament. And in this respect, it's called communion. For Damascene says, it's called communion because we communicate with Christ through it, both because we partake of his flesh and Godhead, and because we communicate with and are united to one another through it. So we have sacrifice, and he gives the justification for that name, we have communion. He gives the justification for that name. And now another name is viaticum. And this is with regard to the future. He writes, with regard to the future, it has a third meaning. Inasmuch as the sacrament foreshadows the divine fruition, which shall come to pass in heaven. And according to this, it's called viaticum because it supplies the way of winning thither. So that's the, the third meaning. Now a fourth meaning or a fourth name That falls under the Viaticum is the Eucharist. And in this respect, Aquinas says it's also called the Eucharist, that is good grace, because the grace of God is life everlasting, or because it really contains Christ who is full of grace. So we have uh, Viaticum, so we have sacrifice, we have communion, we have Viaticum, we have Eucharist, good grace, thanksgiving. And then finally, assumption. In Greek, he writes, moreover, it's called metalepsis or assumption, because as Democene says, we thereby assume the Godhead of the sun, and that would be divination, right? Um, Actually, uh, divinization, excuse me, divination, that's the bad part. That's the bad stuff, right? Where you try to seek uh, future knowledge apart from God. Divinization is whenever we partake of the Godhead, 2 Peter 1.4, we become partakers of the divine nature. All right, so that's five names that he argues that the Eucharist should be rightfully called. So basically his argument is this, premise one, a sacrament is suitably named according to its significance. Premise two, the Eucharist is significant in a variety of ways. Therefore, the Eucharist is suitably called a variety of names. Now, here are some reasons given why the Eucharist is not suitably called by various names. First of all, the sacrament is one thing. Aquinas is going to reply, a single thing can be called various names in virtue of its various properties and or effects. The Eucharist has such various properties and or effects, right? And therefore, it can be called by various names. Second reason the Eucharist can't be called by names that are common to all the other sacraments. Here's the objection a species is not properly denominated by what is common to the whole genus, but the Eucharist is a sacrament of the new law, and it's common to all the sacraments for grace to be conferred by them, which the name Eucharist denotes. Remember, Eucharist, good grace for it's the same thing as good grace. Furthermore, all the sacraments bring us help on our journey through this present life, which is the notion conveyed by Viaticum. Again, something as sacred is done in all the sacraments, which belongs to the notion of sacrifice, and the faithful intercommunicate through all the sacraments, which this Greek word, synaxis, and the Latin communio express. Therefore, these names are not suitably adapted to this sacrament. Basically, all of the names that you're given to the Eucharist can be applied to the other sacraments as well. Aquinas' response, such names are, this is a summary of Aquinas' response, basically, that such names are reserved to the Eucharist because it's the most excellent. Now, an example of this would be the term saint, right? We recognize that the term saint, hagios in Greek, holy one, can be applied to anybody that's baptized, anybody that's a member of the mystical body of Christ. But we don't go around saying St. Adam Minahan, St. David Niles, right? (laughs) As holy as those guys are in the Catholic Man Show. But we reserve the term saint for the blessed in heaven because they are most excellent in sainthood. So to all of these names that we ascribe to the Eucharist, even though technically they could be used for the other sacraments, we reserve it for the Eucharist because of its most excellent status as the most blessed sacrament third reason why it's not proper to or suitable to give various names to the Eucharist, host is the same as sacrifice, which is not its proper name. The objection reads, a host, from Latin hostia, a victim, seems to be the same as a sacrifice. Therefore, it's not properly called a sacrifice, so neither is it properly termed a host. Now, Aquinas is going to reply that it's called host, hostia, in virtue of Christ who is the victim. So it is appropriate to call the, the, the Eucharist a sacrifice because Christ is a hostia. Aquinas writes, this sacrament is called a sacrifice in as much as it represents the passion of Christ, but it's termed hostia, host, in as much as it contains Christ who is a host of sweetness, quoting Ephesians 5.2. So there's Aquinas' dismantling of the objections. We move on now to the fifth point of inquiry, the second to last here, whether the institution of this sacrament was appropriate. Aquinas, of course, is going to answer yes. And his appeal is to Mark chapter 7, verse 37. This sacrament was instituted by Christ, he says, of whom it is said in Mark seven thirty-seven, he did all things well. So Aquinas is just appealing to Christ here saying Christ instituted the sacrament. And if Christ instituted the sacrament, it was appropriate because Jesus can't do anything inappropriate, right? So here's Aquinas' respondeo. I answer that. The sacrament was appropriately instituted at the supper when Christ conversed with his disciples for the last time. First of all, because of what is contained in the sacrament, for Christ is himself contained in the Eucharist sacramentally. Consequently, when Christ was going to leave his disciples in his proper species, he left himself with them under the sacramental species, as the emperor's image is set up to be reverenced in his absence. Hence, Eusebius says, since he was going to withdraw his assumed body from their eyes, that is the proper species, uh, Christ's body in his proper species, and bear it away to the stars, it was needful that on the day of the supper he should consecrate the sacrament of his body and blood for our sakes, in order that what was once offered up for our ransom should be fittingly worshipped in a mystery. So the first reason why it's appropriate that Christ instituted the sacrament is because of what is contained in the sacrament, namely Christ himself. So it's appropriate that Christ leaves his body with us under the sacramental species because he's taken his body under its proper species into heaven. Secondly, Aquinas writes, because without faith in the passion, there could never be any salvation, according to Romans 3.25, whom God has proposed to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. So this is an appeal to faith in the passion of Christ. He writes, it was necessary, accordingly, that there should be at all times among men something to show forth our Lord's passion, the chief sacrament of which in the old law was the Paschal Lamb. Hence the apostle says in 1 Corinthians 5, seven Christ our Paschus sacrifice. But its successor under the New Testament is the sacrament of the Eucharist, which is a remembrance of the Passion now past, just as the other was figurative of the Passion to come. And so it was fitting that when the hour of the Passion was come, Christ should institute a new sacrament after celebrating the Ode, as Pope Leo I says. So the second reason Aquinas gives is in light of the parallel with the Ode Passover, right? Just as you had the old Passover, it's fitting that Christ institute a new Passover to show forth our Lord's passion. Third reason he gives, because last last words, chiefly such as are spoken by deporting friends, are committed most deeply to memory. Since then, he writes, especially affection for friends is more enkindled, and the things which affect us most are impressed in the deepest in the soul. Consequently, since, as Pope Alexander I says, Among sacrifices, there can be none greater than the body and blood of Christ, nor any more powerful oblation. Our Lord instituted the sacrament at his last parting with his disciples in order that it might be held in the greater veneration. And this is what Augustine says, in order to commend more earnestly the depth of this mystery, our Savior willed this last act to be fixed in the hearts and memories of the disciples whom he was about to quit for the passion. So in summary, is the Eucharist appropriately instituted? Yes. Why is the Eucharist appropriately instituted? Aquinas gives three reasons. Number one, it's appropriate to have Christ who is the God-man. Two, it's appropriate to always have something to show forth in the New Testament, that which in which our salvation lies, namely our Lord's passion, as the Passover and the Paschal Lamb showed forth the salvation of the Israelites in the Old Testament. Three, it's appropriate to have that which most enkindles our friendly affection for Christ to be impressed in our memories. So those are the three reasons that Aquinas gives for why it was appropriate for the Eucharist to be instituted. Notice the last one there, friendship. That's what the Eucharist is all about, is intimate friendship, fostering that intimate friendship with our dear Lord. All right, so what are some reasons given why the Eucharist is not suitably instituted. Now, the reasons vary here. One says the Eucharist was pointless, absolutely speaking. The others have to do with the suitability of the timing, whether it be the specified time in relation to the Ode and New Covenants or the time before our Lord's Passion. And you may have picked up on that in Aquinas' reasons that he's given. So like that third reason seemed to be justifying the timing of the institution of the sacrament. These are the last words of Jesus, and the last words of the friend are going to be impressed upon the hearers in a most profound way. And so that was a justification for the timing. And the first reason he's he gave there, if you recall, that the sacrament contains our Lord himself, that's why it's most fitting, absolutely speaking, right? And showing forth our Lord's passion, that can be both absolutely speaking and timing. All right, so... What are the reasons given why the Eucharist is not suitably instituted? Well, again, the first reason deals with the absolute, like absolutely speaking, it's not suitable. We are already nourished by the regeneration of baptism, is basically what the objection states. It reads, it seems that the institution of the sacrament was not appropriate because, as the philosopher says, we are nourished by the things from whence we spring. But by baptism, which is spiritual regeneration, we receive our spiritual being. As Dionysius says, therefore, we are also nourished by baptism. Consequently, there's no need to institute this sacrament of spiritual nourishment. In other words, the Eucharist is superfluous because we're already being nourished by the grace that we already received initially from baptism. So, how does Aquinas respond? Well, basically, he's going to say the objection fails to distinguish between being nourished by the same thing and being nourished by the same thing in different ways. Here's what he writes. We are nourished from the same things of which we are made, but they do not come to us in the same way. For those out of which we are made come to us through generation, while the same as nourishing us come to us through being eaten. Hence, as we were newborn in Christ through baptism, so through the Eucharist, we eat Christ. So, there is nourishment, but there is nourishment in different ways. And therefore, the objection fails. There is a disanalogy, di- the, ana- is- the parallel is disanalogous between baptism and the Eucharist here. All right, the second reason why the Eucharist is not suitably instituted is that God's people were united to Christ as head even before the Last Supper. Again, the institution of the Eucharist is superfluous. Why? God's people are already united to Christ in a, in a different way. The objection reads, men are united with Christ through this sacrament as the members with the head, but Christ is the head of all men, even of those who have existed before the beginning of the world, as stated above in question eight of the Tertioparus, article six. Therefore, the institution of this sacrament should not be postponed till the Lord's Supper. All right, so here is uh, an objection to the timing of the institution of the Eucharist at the last supper or the Lord's Supper. And Aquinas is going to respond that the objection fails to consider the perfect nature of the sacrament of the Eucharist. The Eucharist is the perfect sacrament of our Lord's passion as containing Christ crucified. Consequently, it could not be instituted before incarnation, but then there was room for only such sacraments as were prefigurative of our Lord's passion. All right, so he's basically saying, yeah, you know, the sacrament of the Eucharist contains our Lord's passion in the perfect way because it's not just a prefigurement of Christ who is crucified, but it's containing Christ who was crucified. Some translations say Christ crucified, that is the crucified Christ is in the Eucharist. Other translations will say Christ who was crucified being in the Eucharist, and there's a little bit of a debate there. But the bottom line is that the Eucharist is the perfect sacrament of our Lord's passion. And so before the incarnation, it's only fitting to have prefigurements of our Lord's passion, not Christ himself. Okay. Third reason, the Eucharist can't commemorate that which hasn't happened yet. This sacrament is called the memorial of our Lord's passion, according to Matthew 26. Do this for a commemoration of me. But a commemoration is of things past. Therefore, this sacrament would not have been instituted before Christ's passion. So, This is, again, the timing of the institution is off, because when you do a commemoration, you're supposed to be commemorating things of the past. But this, at the Last Supper, we would be commemorating something of the future because Christ's passion hasn't happened yet. That's basically what's going on here. And Aquinas is going to respond and reply, the objection only assumes that Jesus intended the memorial aspect of the sacrament at the Last Supper. He writes, the sacrament was instituted during the supper, so as in the future, to be a memorial of our Lord's passion as accomplished. Hence he said expressively, as often as you shall do these things. This is the canon of the mass speaking of the future. So the idea here is that, hey, the objection is assuming that when Christ said, do this in commemoration of me, he meant that celebration to be a commemoration. And that's where the objection goes wrong because Aquinas is saying, What our Lord intended was that the apostles, when they celebrate the Last Supper in the future, then they do it as a commemoration. Now, it's important to note here that the Scripture does not have the words as often as you shall do these things, as the Mass says, as the canon of the Mass says. Jesus simply says, do this in remembrance of me. But at least the future action is implied, since we know Christ didn't intend for the apostles to perform the action then and there. The implication of Christ's words, "Do this in remembrance of me," is that they will to be doing it. They are to do it in the future. And when they do it in the future, then you have the commemoration aspect, something in the past. All right, the fourth reason why the Eucharist is not suitably instituted, the Eucharist doesn't map onto the chrono- chronological ordering of events that involved baptism. The objection reads, a man is prepared for, by baptism for the Eucharist. A man is prepared by baptism for the Eucharist, baptism ordained to the Eucharist, which ought to be given only to the baptized. But baptism was instituted by Christ after his Passion and Resurrection, as it's evident from Matthew 28, 19. Therefore, the sacrament was not suitably instituted before Christ's Passion. In other words, it should have come after he instituted Baptism. Right. So in sacramental theology, baptism prepares us for the Eucharist. Eucharist is all about pa- uh, passion, but our Lord didn't give us baptism until after his passion. So the sacramental ordering doesn't map on to the chronological events in time when our when our Lord gave us his passion, his resurrection. Then he gave us baptism. So you, you see the discrepancy there. So Aquinas is going to say hey, the institution of the Eucharist maps on to the order of intention. Relative to baptism, he writes, the institution responds to the order of intention, but the sacrament of the Eucharist, although after baptism in the receiving, is yet previous to it in intention, and therefore it behooved to be instituted first. Or else it can be said that baptism was already instituted in Christ's baptism. Hence some were already baptized with Christ's baptism, as we read in John 3:22. So either an appeal to intention, which would justify the ordering of the institution of the Eucharist before Christ institutes baptism. Or Aquinas says, hey, Christian baptism, for some, is seen to be instituted with Christ's baptism, which would precede in time Christ's institution of the Eucharist. So that does it for the objection and replies for uh, Article 5. Now we come to Article 6, or the sixth point of inquiry, and that is this. Whether the Paschal Lamb was the chief figure of the sacrament. Aquinas is going to answer yes, and he's going to appeal to Saint Paul here in 1 Corinthians five, seven, and eight. Christ our Pasch is sacrificed; therefore, let us feast with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. He goes on in the respondeo writing: We can consider three things in this sacrament, namely, that which is sacrament only. Again, getting for getting to this threefold distinction from the Scholastics, right from Aquinas and others that which is sacrament only, right? That's the um, sacramentum tantum, the sacrament only. That's the bread and wine. That which is both reality and sacrament, res et sacramentum, to wit, Christ's true body. And lastly, that which is reality only, that is res tantum in Latin, namely the effect of this sacrament. So he's distinguishing Those three aspects, right? He goes on, consequently, in relation to what is sacrament only, the chief figure of the sacrament was the oblation of Melchizedek, who offered up bread and wine. So with regard to the sign only, Melchizedek is the chief prefigurement. He goes on, in relation to Christ crucified, who is contained in this sacrament, that would be reality and sacrament, res et sacramentum, its figures were all the sacrifices of the Old Testament, especially the sacrifice of expiation, which was the most solemn of all. Okay? With regard to its effect, the chief figure was the manna, having in it the sweetness of every taste, just as the grace of the sacrament refreshes the soul in all respects. Now, the Paschal Lamb foreshadowed this sacrament in all of these three ways. First of all, because it was eaten with unleavened loaves, According to Exodus 12, 8, they shall eat flesh and unleavened bread. As to the second, because it was immolated by the entire multitude of the children of Israel on the 14th day of the moon, and this was a figure of the passion of Christ, who is called the Lamb on account of his innocence. As to the effect, because by the blood of the Paschal Lamb, the children of Israel were preserved from the destroying angel and brought from the Egyptian captivity. And in this respect, the Paschal Lamb is the chief figure of the sacrament because it represents it in every respect. So basically, Aquinas is saying, hey, look, you got these three dimensions of the Eucharist, right? Sign only, the reality and the sign, and the effect only, okay? And there are figures that map on with all of these three aspects of uh, the Eucharist. And you can even say Some things prefigure the Eucharist chiefly if you're focusing only on one of these aspects. But whenever you see that the Paschal Lamb prefigures the Eucharist in all of these aspects, right? it's not just confined to one or the other, but it prefigures the Eucharist in all the aspects, Aquinas is concluding the Paschal Lamb is the chief prefigurement of the Eucharist because it can meet all of the—it can prefigure the Eucharist in all of these ways. So, in sum, is the Paschal Lamb the chief figure of the sacrament? Yes. What's the reason for this? It foreshadows all three all three aspects of the sacrament of the Eucharist. The sacramentum tantum, bread and wine, unleavened loaves were eaten with the flesh of the lamb. The res at sacramentum, Christ's true body, the Passover lamb was immolated. The res tantum, the effect only, the blood of the Passover lamb preserved children of Israel, preserved the children of Israel from the angel of death. Okay, so now let's move to the objection and the objections and the replies, and what are the reasons given why the Passover lamb is not the chief figure? Aquinas states that his answer in the corpus is sufficient to answer these objections, right? So we're just going to briefly summarize the objections and highlight how his answer that he's already given overcomes the objections, right? So he's not giving any replies here. He states the objections, the reasons given why the, why the Passover lamb is not the chief prefigurement or the chief figure. And Aquinas is just going to say, hey, what I've already said answers these objections. But here are the reasons. Christ is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek, who offered bread and wine. So the argument goes, Melchizedek's the chief figure. But of course, as Aquinas already said, Melchizedek's offering prefigures only according to the sacrament to tantum, the sign only. Reason number two, the manna fits the order of the sacraments, not the Paschal Lamb. The Eucharist comes after baptism. The Red Sea is a figure of baptism. It was the manna that came after the Red Sea, not the Paschal Lamb, which came before it. Therefore, the manna is the chief figure. That's basically the objection. And of course, Aquinas and his answer is saying the manna prefigures only according to the res tantum. That is the primate, the effect. Third reason, the sacrament of expiation matches the principal power of the Eucharist, which is to bring us into the kingdom of heaven. And Aquinas responds, basically, in his answer, the expiation of sin prefigures only according to the res et sacramentum. That is the reality only, Christ immolated, Christ sacrificed. So that does it for question 73, the first question of Aquinas' treatment on the Eucharist, and that does it for this lesson. So in our next lesson in this course, we'll move to question 74 and what Aquinas has to say about the Eucharist there. And so thank you so much, my dear friends. Until next time, God bless you.